Father God, thank you, Lord, so much for this community, for this uh, place, this body of Christ that we can come to and breathe once we get here and stop, um, enjoy fellowship and company and food and, and most importantly, enjoy your presence, Jesus. Experience the breath of your presence here in this place. Jesus, right now, as we turn to your text, to this holy story, God, we ask that you would help us to take a breath, to stop for a moment, and to become more aware of your presence here in our lives, throughout our days, within us, within this community. And Jesus, with everything we have, we give you all glory that more of your kingdom can come here on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. All right, well, today we are continuing our series called This Is Our Story, and we are jumping into uh, the sermon called What's in the Name? So let's look at Exodus chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, you can open them. We'll also be putting the text up on the screen for you. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb. Uh, Horeb, by the way, just is also known as Mount Sinai in the Bible. It has more than one place, more than one name ascribed to it. They came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord, angel just means messenger, uh, appeared to him in flames of fire from a bush. And Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And when the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Hineni, here I am. It's a really fun way to just go, yes, here I am. Behold, here I am, Hineni. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of Avraham, Yitzhak, Yaakov. And at this, Moshe hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down. God has seen, heard, become concerned, and now come down. I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to then bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go. I'm sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people to the people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Who doesn't answer Moses' question. Who am I? Well, I'll be with you. And this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. It'll be something that won't happen yet. <laughs> when you have brought these people out of Egypt, you'll come worship God at this mountain. And Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is God's name? What shall I tell them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, then say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Avraham, the God of Yitzhak, the God of Yaakov has sent me to you. And this is my name forever. The name you shall call me from generation to generation. And the name is 
I am. So what's in that name? And what's happening in this conversation between Moses and God? And how is all this sort of taking shape? Has anybody ever seen Romeo and Juliet? Shakespeare? Eighth grade, maybe? All of those kinds of things? All right. So Juliet has this famous scene where she's up on the balcony and she's looking out to Romeo, who, you know, has the wrong last name. He comes from the wrong family and all of that. And in Shakespeare's words, placed in Juliet's mouth, she says, what's in a name? That which we call a rose by any other word would smell as sweet, right? And her point is, so what? Like, if we don't call it a rose, it's still a rose and it still smells sweet. So what's in the name? Why don't we just diminish, like, get rid of this name entirely? What is the point of the name? We can still just call it that thing. And I'm going to argue that I think that there's something deeply important that God places into our narrative, into our story, when he answers, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. There's a power of naming known in the ancient Near East. And this power of naming is similar to what we have today, but it's, it's even a bit more. Proverbs sort of gives voice to this in Proverbs 22. A good name is more desirable than great riches. A name was known to sort of give you a destiny and a purpose. If you open up the book of Ruth, you're immediately impressed with the fact that they named their kids Sicky and Weaky, which should give you a great indication as to what's going to happen to them later in the story, right? These two guys are going to die. Um, so Sicky and Weaky, right? Like they they're not going to make it very well. So what you, if you had a name, you cared deeply about that name, right? If you are spending time in the Samson and Delilah story, you're immediately going, oh, Samson from the light, Shimshon of the sun, and Delilah of the night. Oh, what's the sun and this, the light doing with the night? Like, were you immediately set up for this is, I mean, you, you can hear the Star Wars soundtrack right underneath Delilah entering because of what her name means. Now, three aspects to names and naming were current in the ancient Near East, and you can see that some of these are current today. First, it gave you that identity. A name identifies the character of the named. So if you're naming that person, you're identifying a character of that person. It presumed knowledge, right? To name someone meant that the namer knows or understands the named, right? I know what this is. It's a chair, So I can name that. I can name that chair. I know what it is. This is a floor. That is a light. It presumes knowledge on the part of the person calling out that name and to identify it and find those characteristics to it. And then third, it can have a sense of authority. To name someone means that the namer has authority over the named, right? Many of you have named uh, your car, your pet, your kid. I don't have authority to go and change that name. I don't have authority to step in and say, no, I don't think that's a good name for your car. I'm going to call it something else or your child, right? I'm going to call it something else. Even if you named your child bookshelf, I would say, wow, that's an interesting choice. Um, You have clearly uh, identified and you have knowledge what a bookshelf is, but you've named your child bookshelf. Pardon if anyone here has named their child bookshelf. Um, But I wouldn't still have the authority to go in and say, that's not your child's name, right? That would be your child's name. You named it that. You're the one who has authority over that naming. So the moment that Moses says, what's your name? There is immediately, in the context of the ancient Near East, a desire to control, to identify, to understand, to have knowledge of God. So God's response is very interesting because God's response is, Ehyeh, Asher, Ehyeh. 
And when you try to translate it, immediately, if you go to all the commentaries, you're like, we're not quite sure what this means. It could mean, I am that I am. It could mean, I am who I am. It could mean, I will be what I will be. It could mean, I, he has caused what he has caused. Like, all of this in this holy name of God. I am, has, I am, I will be. Every time you look it up, there's a little bit more of that. It can't quite be translated or defined. So God's answer to Moses expresses the quality of an absolute being, an eternal, unchanging, dynamic presence, or it means he causes it to be. He causes to be. It's a very confusing answer. No wonder Moses wants a little bit more something, right? A little bit more of a way to carry this God in a box, in a suitcase with him as he goes back and tells the people of God, the Israelites, hey, don't worry. I know 400 years has been a long time, but trust me, God has told me that he has seen and heard and he's concerned and he's come down. And he's going to bring you out. God's going to do all these things for you. What God are you talking about? We live in Egypt. There are gods everywhere. What's the name of your God? How do we know that your God can do this? How do we know that we won't just die at the hands of our oppressors for speaking out, for, for asking for freedom? How do we know this will work? What's your God's name? Um, I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He causes to be. Like, I mean, all of the, the craziness of even of that, Right? We get another hint here that the people of God in Moses' time didn't always quite know what to call God, right? Exodus chapter 6, following that chapter we just read of chapter 3, verse 3 says, God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. And every time you see that L-O-R-D capitalized in your English Bible, that means that it's this holy name of God, this yod heh vav heh I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. So even though in our Bibles, as we're reading chronologically, um, Genesis and then up through Exodus, the name of God, the holy name of God, is retroactively appearing according to our narrative. The people of God haven't had this name yet until this point. So now they're going to start to call God this name that we don't say. We don't say this name. We, don't, we call him the Lord. We call him the Lord Almighty God in uh, Jewish tradition, ancient, the time of Jesus as well as today. The name was not to be mentioned, not because um, of anything spooky happening, right? But because it was holy and special and you didn't want to abuse it. When I was growing up, my mom was very strict about, we couldn't even say, oh my gosh, right? Because it was just a little bit too close to, oh my God. And uh, I grew up Lutheran and my best friend at the time was, had grown up um, in her church, not the Lutherans, down the street. And she felt very free to take the name of the Lord in vain all of the time, in my opinion. And after I read the book of Revelation, I was deeply afraid of this person because I was sure that God was just going to strike down like a bowl of anger on her at the playground. And I would just always, like every time she'd just say, oh my God, I would just scoot just a little bit further over, sure that that lightning strike was coming anytime soon. Um, and so my mom was strict about that, right? We couldn't even come close. She, for, she didn't know she did this, but in Judaism, this is called fencing the Torah. It's about putting like a protection around the command that God gives you so as to not offend. And my mom's explanation was like, well, why can't we say this? Like all my friends are saying it. Why is it a problem? And she said, how would you feel if every time you hit your thumb, my mom's explanation, with, hit your thumb with a hammer, you said, oh, my Danielle, like somebody took your name as a curse, right? So this is how I've also tried to explain it to Phoebe, and we use this in our home as an explanation. But ultimately, even when we say, 
God, it is not the holy name of God, right? This is not the name that God uses to reveal himself. yod Hey vav Hey. Now, how do we pronounce this word? We think that the pronunciation of it has fallen well out of practice by the time Jesus is around or just following because people were afraid of harming the holy name of God. So they didn't even use it. Say so in, in modern uh, Hebrew today, it's where we're walking around. And also in ancient times, if you wanted to talk about God, you would often say the name. In, in Hebrew, it's ha for the and shem for name. So, well, the name. The name told me to do it. Or if you're walking around and somebody gives you good news, you'll say baruch Hashem, bless the name. Now, if you translate it, people will translate it as bless God. But literally, it's bless the name. And you can hear some of this in Jesus in the Gospels as well, where Jesus will talk about the name. Or if you've ever read Kingdom of Heaven, heaven is a euphemism for God. It's, they're saying Kingdom of Heaven instead of Kingdom of God out of deep concern and respect for the name. So all of this is part of our story and part of how Moses is engaging in this discussion with God. Just as a side note, there's this really beautiful aspect of God's holy name. yod Hey vav Hey. If you say each of these letters, yod Hey, Vav, Hey. It can have a sort of a, a breathiness to it. And so the rabbis talked about how when you first are born and you take your very first breath, you immediately start to say God's name. This name that brings life. Yod, Now, if you try to even translate that name, right, we have all of these ways of talking about it, but we don't know how to do it, which has led to then the rise of other words that we've used to call God, like Jehovah. Anyone um, ever done a Bible study on like all of the very amazing names of God? Well, the word Jehovah actually does not occur in the Bible. Um, what happened was, this was what was written, yod He vav He. But because people didn't want to say that name, they said, well, let's say the Lord. But instead of writing Adonai, the Lord, and taking God's name out of the text, they just took the vowel markings. Do you see those other little lines that sort of around the letters, not on that one, but that one? And they put those onto the holy name of God so that when you saw the holy name of God, you would remember to say Adonai and not yod heh vav -Hey. But then later on, people who didn't understand that tradition smushed that all together and saw this as the way to pronounce the name. So that's where he got Jehovah from. But it, it wasn't part of the text. It's part of how they were trying to honor the name and then how later on people misunderstood it. So name-giving in the ancient world implied the wielding of power over the one who was named. Hence, the divine name can only proceed from God, God's self. I think this is important. Moses is going to be given a name to call God that Moses cannot wrap his own mind around because God is the only one that can name God's self. So God pops out again with this, I am that I am, I will be what I will be, and we immediately start to learn that God in a box is not a thing. That this is a name, this is a God that cannot be defined. And I... Just want to note that whatever box you have been around or wished that you could stick God in or you've observed other persons sticking God in, these boxes don't work. There was a time the ancient Israelites thought, oh, we have the 
the Ark of the Covenant, right? And God is sort of in that box. The presence of God has been experienced on the lid of that box. We'll take that box with us into battle against the Philistines. And the box gets stolen by the Philistines into battle. Eli finds out about this, falls over, breaks his neck. And then ultimately, the Philistines holding on to this box have this weird plague that hits them. And it's interesting, and you can read more about it. And they send the box back to the Israelites because God in a box doesn't work. God in a box leads to a broken neck. God in a box leads to various weird plagues. God in a box does not work. God refuses to be boxed in, controlled, or defined. Some of us have felt in the last year or two years that there have been here in the United States of America, and I'm sure in other places around the world, entities within powers and structures and authorities within our cultural discussion that have sought to co-opt the name of our Messiah and Rabbi Jesus, that have sought to co-opt the name Christian, um, that have, we, in fact, I was uh, hanging out with some friends the other day who were suggesting that um, they use the word Christian so infrequently in their home, even though they're Christians, that their kids uh, were starting to refer to other people that they went to church with as Jesus mates. Because you have classmates, and so you have Jesus mates too, right? Because, because the word Christian has started, people have started to label a suitcase and stuff God in to these suitcases, and they've started to take these boxes around our nation, our churches, uh, the Twitter sphere, the Facebook sphere, and they've said, here is Jesus. Here's what a good Christian looks like. Here's what you have to believe. Here's what you have to deal with. And, and here's what I want to say I'm not interested in letting one election cycle or 200 plus years of election cycles, define a God who is indefinable. And I'm not interested in getting co-opted into that. So I love that God gives a name here that can't be boxed in, that can't be defined. And I am deeply in love with all of this because I think that it helps us in our narrative and in our story as we go forward. God refuses to let us name it and claim it. So if you have been part, and I have been part, of something that's like, well, if you just pray it, if you just say the right prayer, if your dear loved one is sick and you just were to name it and claim it, you know, say it the way you're supposed to say it. Here's, did you say it this way? Did you pray it this way? What did you use this formula? This interaction that Moses has with God fully puts on display that there is no box for you to put God into and there is no name it and claim it. God is not interested in us pretending that we have authority or control over God and God's presence in this world. I will be what I will be is the answer. You don't get to control me. I am who I am. You don't get to define me. It is outside of your control, Moses. God's not interested in these boxes. This has reminded me a lot of Carol Dweck's work in mindset, right? That you can have a growth mindset or a fixed mindset. A mindset's frame, she says, the running account that takes place in people's heads, and mindsets guide the whole interpretation process. If you have a fixed mindset, then you can say something along the lines of like, I'm not good at running. That's my fixed mindset. A growth mindset says, I can get better at running. A fixed mindset says, I'm not good at math. I'm pretty sure I had that mindset almost at birth. 
Um, that's like, right? Right there. But a growth mindset says, I can get better at math. I never had that. That was never part of my mindset training at all growing up. And I, don't, I, don't, I know my mother did not intend this, but I remember her setting these categories for us growing up early on. Danielle's good at reading. Danielle's good at literature. <laughs> Danielle's not so good. Let's get you a tutor for math, right? So I immediately got these other mindset boxes. And, and the growth mindset says, you may or may not have a natural talent or leaning towards something, but that's not the interesting question. The interesting question is whether or not you're willing to grow, whether or not you're willing to learn about something new. Now, I want to take this mindset and apply it to our understanding of God. Are you willing to have a fixed mindset about God, or are you willing to lean right back into this Moses experience and say, I'll have a growth mindset? I'm willing to understand and try to try to journey with a God I don't get yet that can't be defined, can't be marked, and I'll grow with what I learn and discover about God as I walk from day to day. Now, one of my friends, dear friend, I think a mutual friend of many of us in this room, Sarah Harms, um, she was one of the first people that sort of talked about this to me in uh, a deeply personal sense. When their first daughter, and I, I texted her today and made sure I, was, I could share this, so just want you to know I, I don't just put people's stories on display without asking first. Um, Sarah, uh, when her first daughter, Elizabeth, was born, Elizabeth was born with a series of complications, one including Turner's syndrome um, and then uh, uh, one kidney and all of the complications of that. So she was in the hospital for the, pretty much the entire first year of her life. Now, for those of you who, who may not know the family, um, Sarah is married to Matt, and Matt is Pastor Sid's son. And Sarah is from a long line of very passionate followers of Jesus. She's an incredible worship leader. And this was their first child. And all of the family sort of anticipated with great hope the birth of this first child. And, and Elizabeth, who's pictured right here, um, the tallest one in the crew, um, you know, she, there were many days where her life hung very much in the balance. And as I sat with Sarah um, at UCSF, um, as we sat and visited with Elizabeth, as I, I brought, um, you know, yummy food and we would sit in her living room, she said to me, what's happening is that the image and the understanding that I had of God is disappearing in front of me. Right? Her whole life, um, I think we all have that expectation of what this first child experience will be like, that your child will be healthy, and that if your child is not healthy, that you can pray in your fervent, deep prayers, and that you can see shifts. And I'm not suggesting that that isn't possible. We've all been part of stories that are miraculous. But we've also been part of stories where we've stood there and we haven't seen God do the thing that we deeply wanted God to do. And so she talked about how Seriously, in that moment, right, she could either say, I have a fixed view of God. God is not doing the thing that I thought God would do. Therefore, I'm going to leave God because my reality requires I, I do something. The dissonance is too great. Or what she decided to do was have a growth mindset with her understanding of God and view this as a time when God was going to dismantle God's self, this sort of false image that she had had in front of her, and start to rebuild it into the reality and truth of who God really is in her life. And that's what happened. And, and she should come here and tell her story someday. Beautiful, amazing family with Ruby and Hannah, and also a fourth daughter, Ava, who's now in heaven, 
who also didn't make it past year one for different reasons, entirely different reasons. Her experiences in this world caused her faith and her relationship and her definition of who God is and what God will do and all of that. Those experiences caused a conflict where some dissonance, it wasn't congruent anymore of like, you know, how many of us have had that name it and claim it, God will do this for you. And we can have that really strong, huge faith-based belief process. But then in the moment, we're starting to have to reconcile a few things. Kevin and I had this very early on in our marriage. We had uh, over six people pass away, one my best friend, of cancer within like a 12-month period. Young people. And and I would have people come to me and say, are you angry with God? And my answer was no, but I'm really angry with the enemy. (laughs) I hate cancer. I have a lot of anger there. But I'm willing to have a growth mindset with this person that I've understood as my creator. God is outside of my understanding, my definition of this box. The disciples had to do this with Jesus too, right? They said, who, what is this? What's happening here? Who are you? And Jesus said, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. He grabs hold of this type of language, this introduction of God with Moses. And Jesus reaches back into that burning bush desert and brings that terminology right there. And he's like, hey, disciples, you're standing in front of a human being. You perceive, right, to be fully human. And yet I'm also going to tell you fully divine. Before Abraham was, I am. And I'm going to be outside of this box. And they're like, well, can we go with you? Where should we go? Where are you going? How are we going to know the place where we go? And he's like, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You want to understand this undefined, inexplicable creator God? Get to know the Father through me. Through this lens, through my life, through the way I live. And if you really know me, then you will know my Father as well. For now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is crazy talk. And Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that'll be enough for us. Don't you know me, Philip? Even as I've been among you such a long time, they still don't get it. They're not going to get it. I don't know that they ever fully got it. It says in the end of Matthew that they go and they see Jesus after he's been resurrected and they worship him, but some doubted of the 11, right? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. This is a growth. This is going to require a growth mindset on the part of all of the disciples, This is not what I understood God to be like. I'm going to have to start to experience something different. Now, I just want to suggest here that what we believe about God does not define God. God exists outside of all of our understanding. If you have the exact right view of God, which by the way, you don't. We're we're all moving there, right? If you have the exact wrong idea, that, that doesn't impact God at all. God exists whether you believe it or not, whether, whether we think it a lot, where we have the right idea, the wrong idea. God exists outside of our understanding. But what we believe about God does define us. It defines our relationship with God, ourself, and others. And how we live in this world and what we believe about this God changes and shapes how we work. Exodus 34. The Lord came down on a cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed his name, the Lord. This is up on Mount Sinai, and, and they're going to have a, the next revision of the, the Ten Commandments. And as the Lord passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. 
If you believe this about God, and the rabbis talked about these 13 attributes of God that are on display in this theophany, then you live differently. I live differently. So we have this ineffable name of God, but then God starts to, through experiences, through the narrative of our story, start to demonstrate God's character. I will be who I will be. I am who I am. But guess what? I'm going to save you. I'm going to rescue you. I'm compassionate. I'm going to reach in. I'm going to pull you out. I'm going to love you. I'm going to have loving faithfulness, kindness to you. But then this next part's the part where a lot of us get hung up. Yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. And he punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. That's where a whole bunch of us hang out. That's where Dawkins hangs out. The Old Testament God is mean and angry and terrible and he just destroys all these people. And okay, yes, that's there. But so is this. And just to note, we haven't even reached the thousandth generation yet. As it says here in the Bible, like maintaining love to thousands, it's actually like the thousandth generation. We're still living in that time period. We haven't even got to the time period, according to the chronology of the Bible, where we would be experiencing the consequences of sin. To the, I mean, to the parents, of these, to the children of these parents. So God gives us love to a thousand generations. And when we read the narrative of our Bible, if we're willing to let God sit outside of the definitions that we would place on top of God, if we're willing to sit in our story and start to read it according to the characteristics of God and the actions of God, how God operates in this world, if we're willing to encounter the Father through the life of the Son, and we're and we start to reject the boxes everyone starts to put God in, then we can start to look and see these sustainable characteristics of God throughout all of history. My sister taught me this a long time ago. She did this escape from Alcatraz triathlon a few years back because my mom always told me I was good at reading. She always told my sister she was good at running. Um, And you laugh, but it's true. I was like Princess Morning Light. She was Princess Running Deer. Like those were names we picked uh, when we were growing up. So she is also incredibly brilliant and amazing in all these other ways. And, but I didn't get the running gene. She got all the other genes. I just didn't get the running one. Um, That's a fixed mindset. I'll work on growth next week. Okay. So she did the escape from Alcatraz Triathlon. And what you do is you go out to the rock and then they line up people. Is this crazy? And then you have to willingly jump. Like this is a choice you make. This is beyond me. Off the bow into water and start to swim with all of these people nonetheless, right? And so you start to swim towards the shore. Now, this is the route that you go. Um, it's amazing, right? And my family and I, Kevin and my parents, we're standing here at the aquatic park, like trying to figure out which crazy person is swimming towards us. And then she's going to like get on a bike and then run and then get on a bike. I mean, it's all the madness of it. And so when the organizers are setting you up for success here, they actually tell you don't swim here. If you do this direct line like this, you will get sucked out underneath the Golden Gate Bridge. Now, This just scares you entirely, right? So instead, we're going to set you out on this play, and we're going to kind of have you turn the circle so that you'll be able to deal with the current and not get sucked out underneath out to the Pacific Ocean. My sister said she was so afraid of this happening because of the way that they sort of set you up that she said she felt like she started just swimming towards the Bay Bridge entirely. Like she's like, I'm just going to go this way instead. So she jumped off the boat and jumped in and started swimming, I can't even believe this, you know, towards the shore, And as she came out of the water, (laughs) I looked at her and I was like, how was it? And she goes, scary. 
Really scary. And all of that for the rest of my life has framed how I want to encounter my relationship with God. If I believe that God has a covenant of love to thousands, to the thousandth generation, if that God is on display through compassion and love and justice and mercy, and then if I'm honest with my own sin nature, with my own desire to be judgmental, with my own uh, tendencies to put God in my own box and put all my own labels on there, God's like this, God's like that, not like this, all of those kinds of things that we all want to do. And the kids asked this question, my, my daughter the other day, Mommy, what color is God? I'm like, oh my goodness, like God is all the colors, God is the color of water, what is that? I, I know of a little one, another astute little one in our, is God a boy, is God a girl? Like the, the things, the categories that we all want to put um, our understandings of this world into. I have all of these tendencies too. But I have decided to put these love goggles on and swim towards the bay, the bay bridge. Because I'm fully aware that with my own judgmentalism, with my own tendencies to put God in a box, that I will not ever, ever, ever come anywhere close to the place that I'm aiming to be in the full expression of God in this world as love, as compassion, in all of the faithfulness and understanding, the words that cannot be defined in all of that. I won't get there if I aim towards my understanding of my human. So I choose to err all the way on the other side of trying to aim for the Bay Bridge so as to not get swept out this other way. And I'm honest about that. I'm honest that when I read the Bible, I choose to say, God, please help me put like the crazy love goggles on right now and stick those on and try to see how as God is operating and at work in this world, he is God, it's not even, it's not a gender, right? That God's self is beyond all definition and description. And yet we see God acting in love and compassion, Caring for the marginalized, caring for the poor, reaching out. We see God's love fully on display through the life of the Son. All of those things we can see and start to sort of just taste. Like we see through a glass darkly, don't we? But someday we see fully. And in these things that I understand the tendency for Moses. I understand Moses. Tell me your name. What am I dealing with here? Let me have some control over this thing. You got this bush burning here that's not burning up. I mean, I need to get my arms wrapped around this. And you want me to do this crazy thing. Give me a box to carry. I understand we all want these boxes. And if in reaction right now to the box that everybody else has put Jesus in, at least in our cultural conversation, or at least how the media thinks that Christians or evangelicals or any of those labels, if, if our reaction to that box is just to pick up another box and go that way, then get ready for a broken neck and a weird, weird disease. Because you also will get those whatever golden hemorrhoids are, right? Like, so that, this does not work. I understand why we do it though, because to not do it is so scary, but it's so good. And I keep hearing my sister's voice over and over again, like, how was that? How was that faithful, scary way of stepping out and saying, hey, I know this God. Let me tell you God's name. It is, I will be what I will be. I am who I am. And Moses has to walk around going, I am sent me. That's, that's his entry point. That is scary, but it's oh so good. It's not defined, it's better than what we have. For we now see only as reflection in a mirror, and we shall now see face to face. I know in part, and I shall, now, I shall someday know in full, even as in that moment, then I am fully known. 
I want to do the scary, ineffable, not quite defined pursuit of God and God's goodness in this world as revealed by Jesus. Because if I can wrap my mind around who God is, it's not God. We've already just had that. We just know we can just set aside my understanding to the side, right? It's the same moment Sarah had sitting by the hospital, begging God for the life of her daughter. There's going to be this moment where we're just going to have to let go of the thing in the box and the suitcase with all of its labels, whatever those labels are, and start to hold our hands open to the mighty, indescribable, beyond our comprehension expression of love, love, compassion, slow to anger, loving, faithfulness, kindness, fully on display in the life of the Son. If you've seen him, you've seen God. And we can see that on display. I see that here in this community. Everything's in the name. What's in the name? Everything. Beyond understanding, beyond our knowledge. Bigger than that, scary, but oh so good. Amen. Let's pray. Jesus, we pray right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit that we would be drawn closer to you. That the mystery of who you are, God in three persons, how we wrap our minds around all of this understanding, God the Father, God the Son, the Holy Spirit, in your name, we pray and we ask for more of you. We understand dimly, we ask for a little bit more today. We ask for just a taste, some hope, some joy, some love, some compassion some care, some concern for this world, for one another, for ourselves. We ask it all in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.